Welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for November 27th through December 3rd. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during This Week in Psychology's past. Then we'll have our feature interview with Professor William Tucker on one of psychology's most controversial figures, personality researcher Raymond B. Cattell. Finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more on this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. November 27th. In 1953, David C. McClellan, John W. Atkinson, Russell A. Clark, and Edgar L. Lowell's book, The Achievement Motive, was published. For November 28th, in 1964, the Old Saybrook Conference, a milestone in the humanistic psychology movement, was held in Old Saybrook, Connecticut. For November 30th, in 1885, Pierre Janet reported his first studies of sleep provoked from a distance, as he called it, later called hypnosis, to the Society of Physiological Psychology. Also on November 30th, in 1896, the first American public school class for children with mental retardation opened in Providence, Rhode Island. And finally on November 30th, in 1904, Max Wertheimer received his PhD at the age of 24 under the supervision of Oswald Kulpa at the University of Würzburg. Wertheimer became one of the founders of Gestalt Psychology. For December 1st, in 1920, A. A. Brill's English translation of Sigmund Freud's book, The Interpretation of Dreams, was published in the United States. And also on December 1st, in 1927, the Journal of General Psychology was first published. The journal was founded by Carl Murchison and Edward Bradford Titchener. For December 2nd, in 1875, the Society for the Protection of Animals Liable to Vivisection, or the Victoria Street Society, was founded in England by Francis Power Cobb, an early animal rights activist. The Society adopted a militant program of prevention of cruelty to animals, especially animals used in research. On December 1, 1949, one of the most successful personality tests in history was published. The 16 Personality Factor Questionnaire, or 16PF for short, was researched and composed by Raymond B. Cattell, one of the leading advocates of the sophisticated statistical technique known as factor analysis. Whereas factor analysis had been used up to that point mainly to determine whether there were one or more dimensions to intelligence, Cattell may have been the first to let it loose on the burgeoning field of non-intellectual personality traits. Near the end of his very successful career, however, just as it appeared he was about to be awarded the American Psychological Association's highest prize for research, he withdrew his name from consideration. On the line to talk to us about the achievements and controversies of Raymond Cattell's life and career is Professor William Tucker of Rutgers University in New Jersey. I should caution listeners in advance that our discussion involves some highly charged issues relating to race and politics. 
Professor Tucker, um, if we could, let's begin with Cattell's background. Um, where was he raised and educated, and why did he decide to come to the United States? Uh, Cattell was raised in England in a really idyllic setting on the coast of Devonshire, where he learned to sail when he was only seven years old. Uh, as he tells it in his autobiography, the only discordant note in his childhood was a conflict with his older brother. And I thought it was interesting that even then, Cattell was acutely conscious of intellectual differences. And he wrote that his brother was this strong, warm person, but his intelligence didn't match his personality, and that was the cause of the conflict between them, according to Cattell. Well, this problem was resolved when his parents moved the brother out of a selective private school that, the both, that both boys attended and into a less demanding public school. Cattell, as the selective private school suggests, was a very talented student, and he attended London University, where he graduated at 19 years old with first-class honors in chemistry and physics. That's the equivalent in the United States of magna cum laude. Um, but during his youth, there were two experiences which combined to point his interest in a different direction from the hard sciences that he originally started out in. First of all, uh, the aimless deaths of World War I, which was at its height in Cattell's early teens, had a deep effect on him. And in addition, in his years in London at university, he was affected by the extremes of wealth and poverty that he saw, which were in such sharp contrast to the conditions of his childhood. And so eventually, as he put it, he decided to give up his boyish interests in the hard sciences in order to study the workings of the mind. Now, by coincidence, just around the time that he was going through this change, Cattell happened to attend a lecture by Cyril Burt on the work of Francis Galton, the, founders, uh, the founder of the eugenics movement. And this lecture really confirmed his transition. So he packed away all the flasks and test tubes, left chemistry and physics, and walked across London University to join Charles Spearman's lab, where five years later Cattell obtained his doctorate in psychology. Um, his goal in the, the field of psychology, which was very new at the time, was to conduct research on personality and intelligence, the results of which he intended to be used to improve human beings through eugenical measures. Uh, although he looked forward to a research career, Cattell then found that there were no positions available in England, and he was forced into what he called a sequence of fringe jobs in psychology over the next few years with very little opportunity for any serious research. But then in the 1930s, in the mid-30s, Cattell was named a Darwin Fellow by the British Eugenics Society, which provided him a grant for a study of the decline of intelligence in England. And in this capacity, as a Darwin Fellow, he produced this alarmist work, predicting that unless dramatic measures were taken, the nation was going to be swamped with what he called sub-men. This study brought him to the attention of E.L. Thorndike, a well-known educational psychologist at Columbia, and also a eugenicist who invited Cattell to join the research group there. And Cattell's plan originally was to accept this temporary appointment in the United States, although it turned out that he then spent the rest of his life, 60 years in the States. Uh, from Columbia, he went to Clark and then to Harvard for a short period of time. He was part of an assessment group in the military during World War II, and after that he became part of, well, he actually was given his own personality research lab at the University of Illinois, where he spent his really most productive years. Now, his uh, most famous uh, production, I guess, the 16PF personality test, was for a long while uh, one of the most widely used personality tests around. Could you tell us a bit about its character and how Cattell came to develop it? Yes. Um, Cattell, as I mentioned, studied under Spearman and then was mentored by Cyril Burt, and these were two of the most important figures in the history of factor analysis. 
But, of course, they had used factor analysis primarily, if not exclusively, in the domain of mental abilities. Cattell was really the first person to see the potential of applying factor analysis to a host of domains other than the components of the intellect. And although we went on to use factor analysis for a lot of different purposes, as you say, his most famous accomplishment is the factor analysis of personality that resulted in the 16 personality factor test. Um, as, as you know, factor analysis is this data reduction process. It begins with a large number of variables and all the intercorrelations between them, and then seeks to identify a smaller number of underlying constructs or factors that give rise to the correlations. Cattell wanted to use this process to identify the basic dimensions of personality, what he called source traits. And his idea was that these source traits would constitute personality's fundamental categories, sort of like the Linnaean taxonomy in biology, as well as its building blocks, like the elements of the periodic table for chemistry. But the big problem was where to start. That is, what were the initial variables he should begin with? The factor analysis of intelligence began with test scores. You administered a battery of tests. But what do you do to begin a factor analysis of personality? Well, Cattell settled on this really ambitious approach. He started with every personality trait in the English language, 4,000 trait terms that had comp been compiled in 1936 by two researchers at the Harvard Psych Lab, everything from abandoned and abject at one end of the alphabetic scale to zestful and zetetic uh, at the other. In fact, I, I, I wrote the word zetetic on my computer, and it wasn't recognized by the spell check. I had to look it up. It means seeking or proceeding by inquiry. At any rate... He began with these 4,000 terms, and first he tried to reduce them by eliminating all the redundant terms. So, for example, there were 48 different words for talkative, but that only got him to 171. He then used some rather simplified cluster analysis techniques uh, and some kind of subjective methods in which he removed some that he thought didn't belong and eventually wound up with 35 variables. So he started with these 4,000 trait terms, he reduced them to 35, and he actually conducted then the factor analyses on these 35 different terms. He used three different kinds of factor analysis, that is, three different kinds of data. Behavior ratings, uh, when one person rates another individual on these 35 traits, self-report questionnaires, and objective tests. And it was his hope that the three different types of data would all produce the same set of underlying factors. Uh, that would have been really impressive had he been able to achieve that result. And in fact, there was some duplication of the factors over the three different kinds of data, but there, was all, there were also a lot of differences. Eventually, Cattell decided on the famous 16 factors in the following way. He took 11 that had emerged from behavior rating data, and then he took one that just appeared out of the blue, factor O, insecurity versus self-confidence, uh, and then four that came from the questionnaire data. If you've ever seen the 16 personality factor test, you know that first, the first 12 have these letters, and the last four then are labeled Q1 through Q4. And the reason is because it's the last four that come from the self-report questionnaire data. In any event, it's, it's really difficult to avoid the conclusion that the final 16 were those that Cattell thought for his own reasons were the most important. Uh, I should add that Cattell didn't help his own cause by his tendency to invent exotic names for factors. Sometimes these exotic, exotic names were acronyms like PARMIA for parasympathetic dominance or PREMSIA 
for protected emotional sensitivity. And at other times, he used foreign terms like Spiesberger concernedness. A Spiesberger is a German term for somebody with a petty bourgeois mentality. Uh, I should add that there have been numerous attempts to replicate Cattell's work, and they've all failed. Even one that attempted to reanalyze the original set of correlations from two of his studies. Cattell's response has always been, well, no one else outside his lab did factor analysis correctly. But despite the controversy over whether these are the true underlying dimensions of personality, as you point out, the 16 personality factor test has been very widely used, translated into 35 languages, and even adapted for use at different age levels, resulting in parallel forms for adolescents and children. So Cattell's approach to personality theory was marked by a rather radically empiricist, multivariate statistical approach to the topic. Could you tell us more about his theory? Um, although, of course, the 16 factors are his most well-known contribution, Cattell's conceptualization of personality was actually much broader than that. He proposed three different types of traits, temperament, ability, and dynamic. Uh, I think of these three different kinds of traits as very roughly corresponding to the famous uh, tripartite division of mental processes into affect, cognition, and conation. So in Cattell's system, temperament traits are stylistic. They have to do with a person's tempo and style, whether the person's excitable, easygoing, persistent, and so on. But of course, Cattell had a completely separate view, a more complex view of ability traits, again, one of the three different kinds of traits that were part of personality. Uh, and his view of ability traits was much more multidimensional. His most well-known work in this area is the distinction between fluid and crystallized intelligence, where fluid intelligence is more culture-free and crystallized is more culture-influenced. But less well-known is the fact that he actually had a more complex breakdown of abilities in what he called the triadic theory, not to be confused with Sternberg's triarchic theory. So tri Cattell's triadic theory is that there are capacities, these kind of almost inherent abilities like fluid intelligence, speed, and memory. There are what he called provincial powers that refer to sensory and motor abilities. And then there are agencies which were more like crystallized intelligence. They were culturally influenced abilities like verbal ability, mechanical ability, and so on. And then there was a final category in Cattell's analysis of personality, dynamic traits, those related to motivation that he called ergs, the same as the term that's used in physics as a unit of work or energy. For Cattell, an erg was like a drive or an instinct, but he wished to avoid those words because he thought they brought historical baggage with them. And Cattell wanted to identify the basic ergs, naturally, again, through factor analysis, and eventually decided that there were an underlying set of basic ergs, just like there were an underlying set of temperamental traits. So although we have this more sophisticated notion of personality involving the different kinds of traits, in every case, factor analysis was the method for identifying the basic elements. So factor analysis really was Cattell's hammer, and every psychological question looked to him like a protruding nail. Near the end of his life, um, the American Psychological Association came very close to awarding Cattell their highest academic award, the gold medal, for this work that he had done throughout his career. Um, but then the APA unexpectedly delayed the granting of the award, and in the end, Cattell withdrew his nomination. Uh, could you please tell us what the reasons for that were? Actually, before commenting on what did cause the controversy over the award, I should mention that Cattell was always a highly polarizing figure for reasons that played no role in the postponement of the award. Uh, it's that 
Cattell wasn't just critical of work by people whose orientation was different from his own. He was absolutely contemptuous, an opinion he took no pains to hide in his own publications. And so, for example, he would write that psychology attracted too many people who strive to make up with the warmth of their heart for the emptiness of their heads. Now, hmm. I've been told that this style of argument is more common in England, and you certainly see it in the work of not only Cattell, but, for example, Cyril Burt and Hans Eysenck, both of whom were English. And so, as I say, he was a polarizing figure. But I want to emphasize that that sort of controversy, inflammatory though it was, played no role in the controversy over the gold medal award. The latter had to do with Cattell's lifelong promotion of an ethical system, actually called it a religion, in which the purpose of psychological research, the reason he entered the field, was to provide data necessary to determine which racial groups and societies were fit to make evolutionary progress. And Cattell didn't mince words about the fate of the unfit groups. They were to be eliminated, not violently, he always emphasized, but, as he put it, phased out by sterilizing them or restricting them to adapted, adapted reserves and asylums until they died out. This wasn't genocide in his view, which involved what he called killing people before their time, but rather what he called genthanasia, the group version of euthanasia, a necessary act so that large portions of the earth did not have to be set aside for what he called museum storage. Particularly uh, important in Cattell's analysis, the unfit races were not to receive any assistance. If a group suffered from famine or disease or natural disaster, Cattell insisted that no other society should help them out, because this would only allow the perpetuation of the genetic defect that led to the problem in the first place. And this restriction on providing assistance also included no culture borrowing. That is, an invention or advance, say a cure for a disease developed by one group, was not supposed to be shared with another, because this other group was not entitled to, to benefit from a discovery that its own members had been unable to make. Now, in the 1930s, Cattell didn't hesitate to name the groups that should be eliminated, chief among them Negroes, who, as he put it, had contributed nothing to civilization or progress except in rhythm. Of course, after the Civil Rights Revolution, it wasn't possible to say such things directly, so that, uh, I mean, wasn't acceptable, of course. So Cattell then offered the hypothetical example of a threat to a society from a racial group with malarial immunity but low intelligence. And it's hardly a secret who he had in mind here. Now, some have contended that Cattell's eugenicist writings were from a long time ago, when many people held such views, and that it's unfair to hold them against him so long after the fact. But in fact, this is not the case, correct? His eugenicist writings continued on to the 1990s? Well, let me make two points here. First, that while, as your question suggests, it's really important to avoid presentism, you know, this tendency to judge past actions by present moral standards, Cattell was considered an extremist even at the time, that is, in the 1930s. So, for example, after the Nazi seizure of power, the very first law passed in the Third Reich was the Compulsory Sterilization Statute, the British Eugenic Society, to which Cattell belonged, of course, was disturbed that the British public might conclude that this sort of law was what eugenicists in the United Kingdom sought. And the society's general secretary made a plea for members to dissociate themselves from the Nazi program. Then, after the Nuremberg Laws were passed, restricting Jews in the Third Reich, another prominent member of the British Eugenic Society denounced Nazi racial theory as a rationalization for anti-Semitism and as an an anti-eugenic myth with no real biological basis. Yet, at the time, 
Cattell praised the Nazi regime for its emphasis on racial improvement. He encouraged the Western democracies to follow the lead that the, that the Nazis offered. I should add that earlier Cattell had complained of what he called the Jewish practice of living in other people's countries instead of forming their own. This was not playing the game fairly, in his opinion. So naturally he was pleased when the Nazis came along and forced the Jews to stop this sort of parasitic existence in which they benefited from other people's societies. So even in the 30s, in comparison to his colleagues in the eugenics movement, he was definitely far from the mainstream. But the other point, as your question implies, is that his beliefs continued well into the 90s until his death in 1998. And the fact that he was the most well-known contemporary scientist with these sorts of extremist beliefs made him the intellectual darling of contemporary neo-Nazis. I should add that their interest in him was more than reciprocated. Late in his life, Cattell published a number of articles in a neo-Nazi journal, the kind of stuff that could never have appeared in a mainstream publication. And in his last major publication, the 1987 book that, in fact, is referenced in the American Psychologist article, in the acknowledgments, Cattell thanks First, the two people who led the scientific assault on the Brown versus Board of Ed decision in the United States, striking down segregated schools, that is, he, he thanks them for their influence on his thought, the people who led the, the fight against the Brown decision. And he also acknowledges, again, as a major source of contrib uh, contribution to his own thought, probably the three major neo-Nazi intellectuals in the United States. Really? Oliver who wrote that Hitler ought to be made a deity and thought that Mein Kampf was a persuasive and cogent work. Wilmot Robertson, another Hitler supporter who argued for rational anti-Semitism on the grounds that Jews were arrogant, obnoxious, and hypocritical aliens who distort our culture and promote race mixing. And Roger Pearson, who made two post-war attempts to form a Nazi international. So, yes, Cattell's thinking did not change substantially later in life. He, he pretty much had the same ideas that he began with in the 30s. Well, there's a number of broad moral questions here, but one of them, I guess, is is when do you think um, it's the case that a scientist's personal ideology should affect whether or not he or she is, is uh, eligible for an award that's supposed to be about his or her scholarly work? Yeah, that, of course, is the crucial question and the one that caused the controversy within APA, where a number of people took the position that, look, even if Cattell said horrible things, he still made great scientific contributions that should be recognized. And and my own feeling, I say my own, actually I rely on Paul Meal's um, discussion of this, of this issue. Um, Meal says, look, there are three conditions in which a scientist's ideology could really be relevant to an award. One is that if the scientist, in the role as scientist, makes proposals that are clear and gross violations of law or universally accepted ethics, in my opinion, the policies that derive from Cattell's system would violate the United States Constitution, the Declaration of Human Rights, the moral teachings of the major religions, the common notions of social justice in a free society. And again, these are policies that he offered in his role as a scientist and I agree with Mayo that in, that, that in doing so, that makes his ideology relevant to the bestowal of an award. But Mayo goes on to suggest two other conditions. He says that when the organization granting the award cherishes what he calls a mixture of aims, then ideology becomes relevant. So American Psychological Foundation, which is the branch of APA that bestows the gold medal award, seeks not only to recognize outstanding researchers, but if you look at their website, their purpose is also to advance the impact of psychology on improving the human condition. 
And one example of that improving the human condition that they mention is eliminating prejudice. And ironically, the very convention at which Cattell had been scheduled to receive his award featured a mini-convention on racism in psychology. So given that APF has this mixture of aims, which includes not only scientific contribution, but also um, the contributions to improving the human condition, I think there's a case to be made that Cattell's work meets one of these aims, but not the other. And then the final um, condition that, that Mail suggests that, sh- that might be considered is when a scientist commits major errors in his scientific work as a result of the ideology. This is probably less apl- applicable to Cattell, though throughout his career he did make one scientific error in constantly insisting, and I think this is related to his ideology, that interracial me- matings, um, interbreeding across races, produced abnormalities in the offspring. Even in the 1987 book, he was still insisting that it was the interbreeding of immigrants in the American melting pot that was responsible for the higher crime and insanity rates in the United States than in the parent countries. But I think this third condition is probably of less importance than the first two. All right. Well, thank you very much for this today. We have been speaking with Professor William Tucker of Rutgers University about the achievements and controversies in the career of Raymond B. Cattell. Professor Tucker is the author of two books, uh, The Science and Politics of Racial Research, published in 1994, and The Funding of Scientific Racism, Wycliffe Draper and the Pioneer Fund, published in 2002, both of those by University of Illinois Press. And now it's time for birthdays. For November 27th, in 1857, Sir Charles S. Sherrington was born. Sherrington is best known for his studies of neural and synaptic physiology, reflexes, the motor cortex, and reciprocal innervation. He won the Nobel Prize in 1932. Also on November 27th, in 1874, Antonio Egas Moniz was born. Moniz was a Portuguese surgeon who performed the first modern operations on the frontal lobes for treatment of mental disorders. Also on November 27th in 1920, Gardner Lindsay was born. His interests were in personality, social psychology, and behavior genetics, and he was APA president in 1967. For November 29th, in 1825, Jean-Martin Charcot was born. Charcot was a pioneer of modern neurology, best known to psychologists for his investigations of hypnosis and hysteria, and his influence on Sigmund Freud. For December 1st, in 1847, Christine Ladd Franklin was born. The focus of her work was color vision and logic, and she and Mary Whitten Calkins were the first women members of the American Psychological Association. Also on December 1st, in 1913, Mary D. Salter Ainsworth was born. Ainsworth is known for her longitudinal naturalistic cross-cultural studies of mother-infant attachment and separation. And for December 3rd, in 1887, Carl Murchison was born. Murchison founded and edited many American psychology journals, as well as the History of Psychology and Autobiography series. And also on December 3rd, in 1895, Anna Freud was born, Sigmund Freud's youngest daughter and a prominent child psychoanalyst in her own right. And 
that's it for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. We would love to hear your comments on the show. You can email us at twithop, that's the initials of This Week in the History of Psychology, T-W-I-T-H-O-P, at yorku.ca. We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website Today in the History of Psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or of York University. Thank you.